got to think I've been praying like so hard. And I was like, God's not going to give me this. God's not going to let me do the rest of my life in prison. And then like, you know, you go into the trial and you, you know it's going bad. I'm thinking the worst that could happen is probably going to just be manslaughter, maybe at the worst, second degree murder, which is 15 years. And so I go into it. I'm thinking, OK, I'm going to get good news. And then they say life. And it's like, like, what just happened? Are you serious right now? And, you know, I'm just sitting there. You got these cameras just in your face and you can't even really fully process it. I mean, it's hard. It's rough. Like, especially when you get to the prison and you see what it's like and like you see what you're missing out on with family. And it's just miserable in there. Like, it's miserable. And you're like, man, you mean to tell me like this is going to continue until I die? Like, really? Because nobody does 51 years in prison. Who's going to last that long? Sintoya Brown Long has lived an insane life. Throughout her early teens, she was repeatedly jailed, repeatedly raped, prostituted, everything. It seems like almost every man she came in contact with did her wrong. When she was 15, a pimp she was in love with sent her out with his gun and she shot and killed a man. She was a teenager who'd been victimized by the world, but she was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But she never lost hope. She believed that God would somehow save her. And during her 15 years in prison, a groundswell of support and sympathy began to grow until the governor of Tennessee commuted her life sentence. She was released from prison in August of 2019, just two months ago. She's now free and starting over. And she's the author of an incredible memoir called Free Centoya. It's the incredible Centoya Brown Long on Torre Show. You have been through an unbelievable journey in your life to get to this point. How are you? I'm good. I'm blessed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you must feel the most amazing weight off of your shoulders and your heart. And just how is it? I mean, it's good. And it, you know, of course there is a weight like that's been lifted. But to be honest with you, until I can see like the other women that I left behind, until I could see some change happening for them too, I won't really feel like that, you know big sigh of relief mm. um but it was definitely like you know i had my own ah finally mm. so yeah. i mean just even in the pictures in the book the the end photos and the sense of relief that we can see is like wow like she's just yeah. so lifted how did you make it through all of this 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 hell that you've lived through it was literally nobody but god that got me through it was rough, and, you know, there was times that, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't even have survived. And I didn't realize at the time just how close I was. But, you know, he was watching out for me. He definitely had angels around me protecting me. I mean, this story, the, the hell of your life starts from early teenage years. Mm-hmm. And there's really, there's really nobody around who's good to you. Everybody's trying to take from you and use you. And I mean, I wonder, you know, just at a young age, when you start seeing that happening all the time, you lose faith in humanity, do you not? 
Yeah. So that started, you know, once I left home, the little cocoon at my mother's house, it was like that. It was always someone that wanted something, always, you know, some kind of drama happening and just a lot of trauma that I was taking in. And for a while, you know, I did struggle with, you know, feeling certain ways about men in general, you know, just about people. You kind of come to expect the worst from people. Um, But you have to realize that just because you experience that with one person, two person, a few people, that doesn't mean it's reflective of everyone. And so that took several years for me to, to get to that place where I understood that. But before you even meet Cutthroat, who's this sort of central figure in the story, mm-hmm. what did you think of yourself? Because there's just... Not much. No. No, not much. You know, I had come to a place where I really didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I really didn't feel like I was accepted for who I was. Didn't even really know who I was. Right. You know, I was just so desperate to to be accepted, like... The people around me, anything that they said that I needed to be, how I needed to be behaving, what was acceptable, I was just taking it all in. Like, okay, this is true. This is how I'm supposed to be. And, you know, I was just lost, like, way before I even met him. Mm. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a child. You were a child. Yeah. But you were being treated like an adult mm-hmm. quite often. And you're dealing with rape, dealing with crack, using marijuana, uh, I mean, all, I mean, just, I, I, you know, I can't imagine what it made you think of yourself. Yeah. Nothing. I didn't think much of myself at all. And I really didn't think much of the things that I was involved with either. Kind of just blindly walking into situations and just figuring out how to survive from there. And when you, I mean, when you meet a man named Cutthroat, <laughs> one would think... One would think like that, that would name be would make red you go, flag. Wait a minute, your name is that? Like, right? Yeah, yeah, you think so? But like I said, you just you're not really processing what's going on. You're you're put in an adult position, but you don't have the capacity of an adult. You're not really thinking, and so yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, right away you're like, he was cute. I wanted to get his number. I wanted him to have my number. I mean, what was that immediate? hold that lit because that's what starts to lead you down the real hell that you went into yeah I think like he was just really good about and now I can see it like you know when we would have conversations it was about me like up until that point I had learned how to present myself to men in order to get what I wanted from them so you know I would usually you know just listen to them listen to certain keywords and then just say every now and then something but with him it was me being able to talk about you know my innermost desires my thoughts and and things like that and I was like oh well he's interested in me and you know that, that that's all I had been looking for is someone who saw me someone who was interested in me someone who accepted me and all he really did was just sit there and be quiet and let me talk <laughs> but yeah you know. you're like yeah the first man who's listening to me yeah and it's so powerful and you feel like affirmed and seen, right? Mm-hmm. For the first time, right? Yeah. And that kind of starts to suck you in. Oh, yeah. Quickly. Like very quickly within the space of days. Like all of a sudden it was like, you know, I didn't want to just see him for an hour. It was like on the second day, let's spend the whole day together, you know? But it so. quickly becomes very treacherous. Oh, yeah. Because he's, you know, his friend is using you mm-hmm. and then he doesn't believe you. He believes his friend he's almost rapidly he starts sort of pimping you and like you sleep with him you sleep i mean why did you 
Except, I mean, I guess you accept that because you don't think anything of yourself. Yeah. And, like, the crazy thing is, like, you know, he was saying all these things. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not. I'm not a slut. Like, whatever. So I really didn't, like, consciously, like, accept it as truth. And whenever, you know, it would be like I was doing what I was doing, I was like, I'm not a whore. I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not prostituting. Like, this is not what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, going out and getting some money from a guy. Like, you just kind of rationalize things in a way where, like, later you're looking back and it's like, what was what was that? And, yeah, like, that was definitely the turning point. The I can't remember what I called him in the book, but I'll just say with his friend. Mm. You know, that was definitely the turning point when things just turned ugly. And I almost think, like, now, like, you know, did they plan that or something? Like, was that just the excuse for him to just openly start acting that way with me? Um, but I don't know. So I guess maybe readers, they can determine for themselves. Tell me what they think. I mean, you know, you want one wonders, why didn't she run away? But where would she have gone? Yeah, there's the where would I have gone? You know, my mother's home, of course, her door was always open. But there was a part of me that was like going home would be accepting defeat. It would be saying, you know, I failed. I know I told you that I was capable, that I was grown and I didn't need all the structure that I wasn't a little girl because I wanted to be an adult. But really, the truth was I wasn't. You know, I just couldn't admit that I was a child and that I did need to be at home. I did need to be in school. I wasn't ready for that anymore. So there was the question of where would I go? And then there's a part of you that doesn't want to leave. You know, and people who haven't been in situations like that, they don't understand. You always hear people when they're looking at domestic violence situations. Well, he hit you, girl. I would just leave. Why would you stay? That's stupid. And unless you're in that situation, you can't understand it. Like, you don't. You always think, well, it's going to get better. Like, well, it's this is just a little hiccup or I was tripping and I understand why he did it. You make explanations, you make excuses, and you're always just kind of hoping. You just have that hope that things are going to change and it keeps you there. I mean, just even stepping back, a lot of people, some people have strife with their mom and, you know, maybe think about leaving or want to leave. Mm-hmm. What is the difference that that led you to actually leave when so many other people are like, oh, I hate my mom, but I'm not going to run away from her? I think it was because I had a taste of something different. So I actually ran away from a facility. So I wasn't in my mom's house when I ran away the first time. And who wants to be locked up, you know? And so once I ran to the facility and I was out and I was able to move around how I wanted to, I could make all these decisions. It was just like... Like every teenager's dreams, I didn't have somebody telling me to clean up my room or I needed to go do my homework or I couldn't wear this out of the house. Like I could do whatever I wanted to do. And so when I I got caught on the run and, of course, went back to my mother's house, then it was back to, okay, so you need to get yourself together because you got school in the morning. It's like, what? Excuse me? (laughs) Like I don't want to go to school. And, of course, I would not ever, ever in any circumstances be allowed to smoke weed at my mom's house. I wouldn't even know like where to get it, like in my neighborhood from home, like in my mom's neighborhood. I didn't know people that were doing that where I lived in Clarksville. So I wasn't running from her house. I ran toward the things that I was trying to get involved with. And so that's the difference is that I had that taste of something different and it just kept calling me back mm, mm. in the book and it, you know you remind me of 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 asada shakur's book in that you know there's oh, wow. so many heavy things happened to her 
and then in the central moment that sends her to prison, you're like, something horrible happened. Let's move on, right? We're not going to go through the specifics of what happened that night. But then the next night, you're like, we're going to get away with this, right? And then the police are at your door. And what is that moment like? You know, honestly, I didn't even think... Like, okay, I could get in trouble for this. I know what I felt. I felt like I was defending myself. Like, I didn't expect for the police to come knocking at my door. Like, I just didn't expect that. And then, like, whenever the police came to talk to me, they were all like, well, what happened? Like, what was going on? And you know, did, did he scare you? And I was like, well, yeah, this is what happened. And I'm thinking, they understand. Like, this is okay. It's self-defense. I'm not going to get in trouble. But well, your every thought is to protect... <laughs> Yeah, well, that was my Cut first throat. thought. Whenever, because you know, like whenever they answer the door, like how he acted, I'm not going to talk too much about the book, but you know, that was my first reaction. And so in my mind, like everything was okay. I'm not going to say this, and that really came up when they were asking me specific details. Who was that man in your room? What were you doing with the man that picked you up? Anything that could lead back to Cut, it was like, oh well, well, it wasn't that. And to the point of just being ridiculous. Whenever the police arrested me, I even told them I was 19 because, you know, that's what Cut had taught me. If you're ever arrested, you're 19 because obviously he was an adult. Um, but they quickly found out I was 16. And even after that, you know, you find out, you found me. I was naked in the hotel room. Like, that's how you found me. And when they found out I was 16, he was still there with them because they had arrested us both for questioning. Taken us both in for questioning. He arrested me, took him in for questioning. And he didn't... You didn't feel the need to follow up at all. So there was never like any kind of instinct with them to kind of like figure out what's going on. They never looked at me as someone who was being exploited, you know, possibly a trafficking victim. Like none of that. To this day, the detective, he still doesn't feel that way. He feels, oh, well, she was choosing to be out there prostituting. She knew what she was doing. You're a like, child. Thank you. You're not old enough to make these decisions. Right, right, right. So... Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I mean, the you know, just just in terms of the decision-making process, the way you describe it, it's almost like a sort of hypnotism where he's like, hey, girl, go yeah. do this. And like, okay. Yeah, and it's like, you know, people think, oh, well, I've heard like I was in a sex trafficking ring. And when you think about things like that, it's like, you know, these people are taken captive and stuff. Like when you're dealing with somebody who is as vulnerable just young girls, period, are so vulnerable. But everything like that I was dealing with internally, like you don't have to. Like all it takes is a little bit of finessing. Right. Like that's it. And At that's that all age. you got to do. Yeah. And when there's so few people in the world who are showing you attention and showing you – I don't want to say love. I guess at that point you received it as love, even though it was yeah. not. Um, that is like fresh, clean water, right? Yeah. When you're thirsty, right? Yeah. And then I had all these skewed like understandings of relationships. I didn't have like any sort of a people showing me attention. There were all kinds of creepy old men that were showing me attention, you know, walking down the street to the store, I would get that attention. And 
I never really felt like they wanted me, like they were paying attention to me. So when I got that with him, it was like, wow, this is what I want. And I had all these unhealthy ideas about relationships, about, you know, you're supposed to find this man and your ultimate goal in life needs to be that this man is going to take care of you. Like that's 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 where you're trying to make it to. Of course, you see, like in the book where I got that from and but a man also likes someone who can bring something to the table. So I had all these like different things that were going in my mind. And so I was like, okay, this is my chance at a real relationship. And every time when I would go out and I would come back with this money, like I'd be like, oh, Cut's really going to be impressed. He's really going to love this. It's going to make him so happy, you know, that I've got this money and I'm bringing it back to him. Like I can bring something to the table. I'm contributing to the relationship. Like all these sick things that you're telling yourself that's just not true. But, you know, at the time, like I was a kid. And of course, like nothing was ever enough. It didn't make him happy like love was not on the table period and you had you described these ideas about sex that you got from watching porn yeah when you were much younger yeah than that uh talk about that part of it yeah so i had found um a tape a porn tape and I would watch and it was i was so fascinated by it and then like on the internet i just kept watching it i was like 10 years old when I started watching porn and obviously it's not telling you like, yes, this needs to happen between two consenting adults and you need to make sure you do this, that and the other, like it doesn't. And so just, you just kind of think like, well, this is what happens. And these are all the moments like that when I have to close my eyes on HBO shows and my mom closed my eyes, this is what's really happening. And this is what they're keeping from me. But here I was actually doing it and I didn't understand anything that it really was. It was just kind of just something to do. And so here I was having sex with people just because, just because it was something to do. Not because I was attracted to them, not because there was some kind of bond there, just doing it. And it gives you a currency in the world, right? Like it gives you something to allow you to get something from the men around you. Yeah. And so, and I remember the first time, like something like that happened where it had been an exchange, you know, the guy that had helped me, run away from the facility mm-hmm. and he was like come on and I was like okay like I kind of really didn't even think like do I want to do this should I do this it was like okay I guess this is what we're doing mm. so and you felt like you owed him because he helped you escape I guess like well prison. I guess this is what's supposed to happen I really didn't think anything through it and I didn't have anybody obviously at that age my mom wasn't telling me about stuff like that why would she think that her 12 year old daughter her 13 year old daughter was doing things like that in in retrospect, do you think that your mom failed you or you failed to hear her? I don't think my mother failed me at all. You know, she was constantly trying. You know, when she would get called up to the school, she was asking the school what she could do. They gave her no answers. You know, when I was locked up in, in the juvenile court and when she had to go to court with me, she was asking for help. You know, anything that they had said that she needed to do, she was doing. She enrolled me in counseling and things like that. So she tried, but there was so much going on within me by the time that it really presented itself to that level that it was just, I mean, everybody like always says like, you know, parents felt like parents are not the only place that kids get influenced. Like, of course, it's not. So like there was stuff going on at school. There was stuff going on with my peers Like, there was all kinds of other stuff that was coming in. And then there was a trauma of, you know, feeling like I didn't fit in anywhere. Of feeling that, you know, I came from this lady that, 
you know, is is some mystery lady who I was adopted from and like, what is that about? Who am I? So there was all kinds of issues that were going on that I really didn't even know how to communicate at the time. So I wouldn't say that, that she failed me at all because she didn't know what was going on with me. That's yeah. all that she used to say. What's going on? Why are you doing this? When you're going through your trial, you didn't really think that it would not go your way, right? You kind of, you kind of, it seems like you're kind of in a daze of like not really understanding like the gravity. Like you kind of knew on a top level of your mind what could yeah. happen, but on a deeper level, it still seems like this is going to work out, right? They're going to understand, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, you got to think, I've been praying, like, so hard. And I was like, God's not going to give me this. God's not going to let me do the rest of my life in prison. And then, like, you know, you go into the trial and you, you know it's going bad. You kind of see these things, but then you cling to every good thing. You cling like, oh, this person looked this kind of way, so that must mean that must mean this. And, well... I'm thinking the worst that could happen is probably going to just be manslaughter, maybe at the worst, second-degree murder, which is 15 years. And so I go into it. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get good news. And then they say life, and it's like, excuse me, say what? Well, when they the, when the jury comes in and says guilty yeah. on three counts, right, mm-hmm. what is the feeling? <sighs> like, I was just like, oh, I'll tell you this. So, like— we were sitting there, you know, you're supposed to rise and everything after the jury leaves. Like, we were not standing up. So, like, as, I was pissed. Like, we were all, like, really upset because it was like, man, like, these people didn't hear us at all. You know? Like, they didn't hear nothing that we had to say. And what do you mean? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend life in prison? And it was so automatic. Right. Like, normally you get convicted and then you have a sentencing hearing. But because it's an automatic life sentence with, you know, the first-degree murder conviction, he said it right then and there. Automatic life in prison. So I'm like, wait, what? Like, what just happened? Are you serious right now? And, you know, I'm just sitting there. You got these cameras just in your face. And it's like, really, people? Really, right now? So it was just so much going on. I mean, I can't imagine the the heart sink feeling that would come from like, wait, they just said guilty and he just said life. What the hell is going on right now? Yeah. And then you don't want to, because, you know, I had my DA that was just pretty much taunting me from the beginning. You don't want him to see me, you know, upset. And so I'm like, I'm not going to let him see me cry. He's not, he's not going to see it. So I just sat there just stone faced because he was not going to, I wasn't going to let him know that he got to me. And, you know, I didn't believe it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just defiant. I'm not going to do life in prison. I don't care what they have to say. God's going to get me out of this. And that's when I went back to my cell and, you know, I prayed. I said, if you get me out of here, I will tell the world about you. How did, how did you have a sense of faith in God at that moment after everybody? I mean, you had been at that point in the book, you have described being raped more times than one could count. You described people doing you wrong more times than I could count. It seems like almost everybody you come into contact with uh, is doing you wrong. And then, you know, the D.A., you feel like has a personal vendetta against you. The jury doesn't hear you. The judge immediately sends you away forever. How do you have any sense of faith in God when it seems like your mother is the only person who's been nice and sweet to you your entire life? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, God was acting through her a lot of times, but I think we blame God for a lot of things that he has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of things are our own decisions. They're due to, you know, the enemy. He's busy. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's not of God. And, you know, God was that voice that was getting me through. That was telling me, you're not going to do that time. That was giving me those those kind words from my mother, like the small kindnesses from certain people. You know, that 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 was God. You know, God wasn't responsible for everything else. But what he did is what was meant for my bad, he turned around for the good. He that, did it in his time, but he did it. Is that he did it in his time in his time? I mean, I've I've I was re- I was in wonder, you know, when you get um convicted to something massive like that and that first night when you know, they they close and you're away and it's like, oh my God, like I'm here yeah. for the rest of my life. And like what is that moment, that first night like? I mean, it's hard. I just, I know I just made up my bed halfway. I didn't even make it up the whole way. And I just lay there and cried. And that's all you can do. Like, you know, just stuff your face in the pillow and cry because it's like, what? Like, just, and you can't even really fully process it. You just can't. And just, I mean, it's hard. It's rough. Like, especially when you get to the prison and you see what it's like and, like, you see what you're missing out on with family, and it's just miserable in there. Like, it's miserable. And you're like, man, you mean to tell me, like, this is going to continue until I die? Like, really? Like, who? because nobody does 51 years in prison. Who's going to last that long? So it's just like, like, it's horrible. It's miserable. And you can, I mean, there are older women there. Yeah. So you can see, like, shit. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of the women, like, who have been there, of course there were women who have been there 20 years, and but then you have some that have been there, like, 30 years. Like, there was this one woman, you know, poor old Miss Emma, and her mind's just gone. And I can remember her from when I started my time, how she was just so full of life, and just to see her just deteriorate in that way. And bless her heart, you know, she's always saying, like, going to Crossville. She thinks she's going home and it like just breaks my heart. And it's like, man, no, she's not like, I mean, you know, God can intervene. God can, but it's like anytime she gets packed up to move somewhere, they tell her she's going home. So she'll go. And it's just so sad. Like, it's so sad. And it's like, wow, this is like really like a helpless place. Like this is literally the devil's playground, like where we are right now. It is the devil's playground, but the, the prison experience you describe does not seem like the hell that some other people yeah. have described in, in their prison time. I, I mean, and it's hell, but I've heard it's others. It's about what you make with it, and that's the whole thing. For me, I decided that I don't care where I'm at. I don't care what the circumstances are. I'm going to live a meaningful life. And so, like, what you read is, you know, me navigating, trying to find that, me searching for that. How do I do that in this place? Like, how do I do that? And how do you do that? It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. You know, I started, I didn't even know what to do. I know my attorney had said, you can just completely give up. You can run around and you can be fighting and you can do drugs or you can get in every program that you can. And I said, well, I'm going to do that. So, of course, I had a setback at first. But, you know, once I decided that I was going to get on the right path, I joined every program I could. I joined the anger management class. Didn't work out for me well. And, you know, then I got into Lipscomb and like that really started. Yeah. Lipscomb was the prison college program. And that really just started turning things around. And the reason that was so effective is that 
you know, I was dealing with a lot of issues still coming from the situation with my self-worth and the things that I thought of myself. And so when it started to show me like what I could do, when it started to tell me like, you know, we believe in you enough that we're going to invest in you. We think you're worth salvaging. And it was like, wow, wait a minute. You know, and I found a community of people and that really helped me. Like Lipscomb was like my little, it's like my little refuge with all the craziness and stuff. If there was like drama going on. I just go do my homework. I just go study. And, you know, for a while, like that's, that's where I found my strength. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a moment where, because you talk about having that faith in God that first night, mm -hmm. but then you meet somebody who's truly religious and she tries to speak to you about God mm -hmm. and you're basically, what did you say? Something like, you know, God doesn't care about me, so I don't care about God, right? Something to that effect. Are you talking about Miss Seabrooks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't say Miss Seabricks is religious. I would say okay. that, that, you know, she is a follower of Jesus. Okay. I come to find that there was a big difference in that. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you know, she told me, like, when you come to Jesus, that's when you'll be free. And I'm like, that's not how that's going to happen. Like, when the court says that, you know, my attorneys have argued well and I'll win this appeal, like, that's when I'll be free. Obviously, that was a lie because <laughs> that, that's not how that happened. But— 
yeah, I was still thinking in these terms of, you know, he didn't answer my prayer back then, so he must not have heard me. So maybe there's not even one at all. Maybe there's not even a God at all. And, like, it breaks my heart, like, where I was in that point, but he still didn't let go of me. Like, he still didn't give up on me, even though I started to give up on him. And it wasn't until I learned about having a relationship with him, until I learned about how he does things, not how we think of things and how they should be done, but how he wants them to be done. And at that time, you know, I wanted myself to be free. But the way that he did things in the end, it's in a way that other people can be free. Like, there's so many other people that can benefit from from what's happening right now. And he set this all up. It's nothing that I've done. Like I, didn't, I, I didn't put myself here. He did that. You remind me of that, what do you want to call it, a parable or... A- when you know, I was I, when when there was only one set of footsteps on the beach. Where were you then, Jesus? Like, and he well, was carrying me. I was carrying you. Yeah. And that's and you lived that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you don't notice that till afterwards because you think like you left me, like you didn't do this for me, you know. And it's like wow, it'll blow your mind when you look back and you see just that he was there the whole time. And like when I. When I felt that conviction in my heart, it was like, wow, man. Like, I'm living for him from this point on. And, you know, nobody is ever going to tell me anything different because I know I've seen it. It's been so real to me. And, you know, I had that encounter. Like, I think everybody who, like, comes to know the realness of God, they have that encounter where it's like, whoa, you just can't deny him that well, he's is, real. What is that moment for you? Do I have to tell her or can they read it? No, I, well, please, 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 <laughs> please tell us. Okay, so... You've heard of Joseph, right, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he he dreams, and and then it actually comes to pass. Well, you think of these things that happen in the Bible, like, okay, great, that happened, like, cool, cool story. You know, yeah, I, I believe it may have happened, but that was back then. I don't see that now. That's not really reality. And then it happens to you. So I happened to have a dream in Memphis, and... It happened in reality, like literally, like down to the very last detail, it came true. And it was like, whoa, that was creepy. And I'm so glad I had actually told one of the other girls what the dream was, you know. And then it was after that that it came true. So she was like, oh, like, that's creepy. And then it happened again a second time. And so when it happened the second time, she was like, okay, now this is freaky. Like, something's going on here. And it was scaring the crap out of me, too. And, like, when that happens like that, it's like, okay, there is no rational explanation for this. Because I had come to the point where I try to explain everything away. I try to find a rational explanation for everything. And you just can't explain that. Like, that's that's something else. Like, that is God. Mm. Like, all day long. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, this is real. Like, he's real. And, you know, it would still take some time after I met my husband and, you know, we started talking and I started like discovering that I had actually become angry with God because, you know, he had told me that I was like, I'm not angry with God. You're tripping. And he was like, issue. I was like, no, I'm not. I just don't believe in that. And I believe in the universe. I don't believe in, you know, all this other stuff. And just he was like, man, like, do you know Jesus? I was like, well. Yeah, like, I know, but 
I know what I've heard about them and this, that, and the other. And some of the lies that you're told. And he was like, have you read that in the Bible? Did you see that about Jesus? I was like, well, no. And so then I started to actually read about him. I started to actually learn from him from the Bible. And I was like, wow, like Jesus is dope. You know, Jesus, you know, he went through the justice system too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like he was, he was executed. Absolutely. He was treated so unfairly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just broke my heart because I was like, man, like he is my brother. Like, and they lie about him all the time. Like to this day, they're lying about him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like what else have I been learning? What else have I been being told that I've just been accepting? And this is just like everything else that I had come to accept about myself from what other people were telling me. And like, that's not true. And so it just changed my whole life. Like, really, it just completely changed the way I look at everything. So Your husband is here with he is. you. Um, how did y'all meet? Jesus. <laughs> um, so he wrote me while I was in prison. He had um, saw a documentary about me on YouTube. And he wrote just to tell me that he was praying for me. Um, but also he said, you know, God wants me to tell you that he is bigger than any sentence. He's bigger than any judge, any jury, and he's going to get you out of here. And when I read, when I read the letter afterwards, like when I was packing myself up um, to send home from prison, like just reading how prophetic it was, it took me back to that place when I had that dream because he had mentioned, he said, the more people start hearing your story, the more the world is going to start praying for you. And, you know, this wave of support is going to come in. And at the bottom of the page, he had actually wrote Free Centoya hashtag 2017. This is in January. That didn't happen until November. So it's like, bro, like this is crazy, you know? And that's one of the things we had actually like bonded over. And I started like listening to what he had to say about his experiences with God and his understanding of God. And I was like, wait a minute. Like I had that experience too. Like he's had dreams too. He's heard the voice of God as well. And like stuff that you can't explain. So I was like, wow, wait a minute. So I'm not the only one. So I'm not crazy. I'm not a nut job. I'm not schizo. He was like, no, you're not. And you know, it's just, it's been history since then. How did you, well, how did this relationship develop? And how did you know how to love and how to receive love? Yeah, so the relationship developed over the course. We've, this was January 2017, so it'll be about three years. And in January, it'll be three years. We've been married for almost a year. Um Writing letters, talking on the phone, spending gobs and gobs of money, his money, on Global Tail Link. <laughs> Very expensive. Um, so, yeah, we just got closer. Like, you know, he's my best friend. He's been my best friend. Like, the right. times in prison, like, he was there. He was the one that I called. He was the one that I cried, like, 24-7, talked about everything. And, you know, it just, like, we just got close. How, so. did, you, how did you have the ability to trust a man after so many men, almost almost every man in the book is mistreating you. Yeah. And so that really happened too. Like when I, when I joined Lipscomb, you know, early, 
early in my sentence. I think I started like 2009, so around that time. Like, this was the first time that I had actually been around people who were okay. You know, I had always had a negative experience with people who call themselves Christians. I always felt judged. I always felt that I wasn't good enough to be in their company, that I wasn't be good enough to be, you know, a, a quote-unquote Christian. And when I came around them and I could just see, like, wow. Like, these are genuinely good people. Like, they don't judge me. And they tell me that the reason they don't is because of Jesus. And I'm like, huh, wow, you know, this is that's interesting. And then also the men who were in the program, like, they weren't coming at me. Like, they were attracted to me. That's what I had become used to. Right. And I was like, wow, they don't want anything from me. These, these people, like, really just want to be a friend. Like, this man... He has a wife, and he's actually loyal to her. He's faithful to her. And that just wasn't my experience. And I had come to have this, like, negative worldview, and they just turned that upside down. So I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't how the world is. This isn't how life works. And so I had to come to that process where it was like, I'm not going to allow, you know, cutthroat who's dead and in the ground to continue having power in my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let all these men— who treated me the way they treated me to dictate how I am moving forward. I'm not going to let them rob me of a chance to have healthy relationships. Mm. And so I had dealt with all that by the time Jamie had come around. Now I didn't think that I would actually be in a relationship while I was still in prison because, you know, it's women's prisons. <laughs> There's not exactly, you know, amen, especially not as fine as he is. So, <laughs> You know, it was it was just by the grace of God the way that it came through. But you did have a relationship, not that's too big a word. You did very much too big a word. Way too big a word. You did sleep with one yeah. of the CEOs and it's interesting because in that situation you're immediately like, This is wrong. Yeah. Right? Much faster than in the other situations yeah. when, when men were stealing sex from you, stealing your body. In this situation, you're like, this is wrong. Yeah, because, I like, I knew better. Like, I felt disgusting, like, after that. And it was like, bro, like, what are you doing? Like, you just did this to try to make yourself feel better. And so I'm like, I'm just putting a Band-Aid on something. And I was like, why would I do that? And, you know, that's when I was like, okay, obviously there's something here that I haven't dealt with. There's something here. And... I had to think that I can't, like, allow myself every time, like, I feel like my self-worth is down or it's been attacked some kind of way. I can't, like, put a Band-Aid on it. I need to address, like, whatever is within me. I need to find out, like, where am I going to put how I view myself? Because apparently, like, I've been basing it on other things, like, things that that are going to fall away. Everything will, will come. Everything will go. Everything will change. And, you know, it wasn't until, like I said, I started viewing myself the way Jesus does, the way that God does, that things started changing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, 
I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I've interviewed a bunch of people who did a lot of time. You did 15 years. I did. And... I generally find them to talk about feeling institutionalized, mm -hmm. that the experience continues to weigh on them after they are free. Um, are there ways that you, that you find that the long confinement, the prison experience continues to weigh on you? Um, no, only in the point that, you know, I want others free. I want others to experience that freedom. But as far as like being institutionalized, no. Like, How's that? Because I don't want to be there in the first place. Like, no, I didn't. I think like when people feel institutionalized and like when you're in prison, you see people that are so institutionalized, they get comfortable where they are. I was never comfortable. Like from the moment I walked in, I'm like, this, this ain't it. Like, I'm not trying to be here. Like, this isn't where I want to be. How do I get out of here? Like, OK, I'm ready to go home. You hear a lot of people in prison you know, who are institutionalized, they say, well, if I get out or if I want to, I always say when I get out, when I get out, this, this is not my life. This is not what it's going to be. So in my mind, you know, I would always think about being free. I would lay in my bed and I would envision it constantly. I know in the beginning of my time, that's all I wanted to do was lay down and just daydream and just think about freedom. Like it was always in my mind. So now being free, is just natural to me. Like, it's natural. Like, no, I'm not institutionalized. I don't miss it at all. Not one bit. It was it was in your mind, but when it starts really catching fire out in the world yeah. and you become a symbol, what was that like? And, and when you start to feel like there's a larger and larger group of people mm -hmm. who are saying, this was wrong, she needs to be free. What is that like for you? You know... Seeing how, like, so many people started, like, voicing how they felt about it, you know, it was it was so affirming that there are people in this world who see us here in prison. And I didn't see them as speaking out just for me, but for all of us. And so every person in prison, like, they're constantly waiting for the laws to change. Like, they're always in the law library looking. They're always watching on the news. Anytime there's a whisper of a bill being presented to decrease sentences to change you know the school zone drug laws anything like they're always like clinging on to it and so like whenever this was happening there was other women like oh my god this is it girl things are going to change like god's about to open some doors and so it was like yes like i pray like i pray if it be god's will um but then there's an element like it makes you nervous because you're like 
like, is this going to turn out bad? Or, you know, there's a lot of people who don't believe in reform. There's a lot of people who don't think the system is broken. Like, is this going to bring them out of the woodworks? Are they going to kind of plant their feet in the dirt and be like, no, we're not doing this? Um, So it was definitely a time where I had to stay focused on God and just pray that his will be done, whatever it was, and just trust that. Because you did become this big symbol. And, you know, I I was talking about you. I was aware of you. A lot of people were, like, aware of you. For a while, it seemed like when we were agitating to to get Nelson Mandela free, and it was like, it was an idea. We didn't think that he was actually going to be released. And I felt like, you know, there was a growing sense of, like, see, Sensoya Brown— is a symbol of what is wrong with the system. But was is this actual person going to be released? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. But like this, see, see and, and this attention around what's wrong with the system and the world is laid on your name. But I'm like, is she actually going to get free? I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. Here I, I am. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you start to see, you know, actual superstars are spreading the name and spreading the word. And are you like, oh, this could actually happen. This thing I've been dreaming of could actually happen. I didn't necessarily see the superstars and and think that it could actually happen. I saw, you know, just everybody, what was happening. And I thought that it was important that people were talking about change. But for me personally, it scared me because I know we had heard from the governor's office that that wasn't helpful. You got to think in his position, he he is a public servant. Like he's a government official. He can't be seen as showing people favoritism because there's an outcry. You He can't be seen as like, I'm going to make decisions based on tweets. Like he can't do that. So it's like, oh crap. Like what if, and I didn't know anything about Governor Haslam at the time. I didn't know if he was going to be like, well, I'm going to do this and deny it just so people don't think that I'm making this decision based on this. And so, like, it scared me. It really did, you know. But I just thank God that Governor Haslam is a man of faith, too. And the whole process, he was listening to what God was saying. He looked at everything in my file, and he didn't base his decision off of, you know, someone's tweets or anything like that. He based it off of the steps that I had taken to rehabilitate myself. He based it off of, you know, what the Lord told him is is what he should be doing. He looked to God first and then thought of himself as a politician second. Mm. And so I just thought that was really incredible. And just another example of how, you know, God can move anybody, right. anybody. He can change anybody's heart. He can change anybody's life around. Um, there ain't nothing he can do. When they come to you and tell you, okay, he's going to sign the paper. Mm-hmm. You're going to get out. You're yeah. going to get a date. What is that feeling? It was so... I knew it like when I was walking and it was so crazy. There was a girl in my pod and, you know, I didn't get a chance to put this in the book, but on a Thursday, you know, she had woke up that morning and I had looked at her and there was something in her that I just saw. And she was like, it's a good day today. It was like, it is going to be a good day today. And the weekend goes by and then Monday morning I'm called down to meet my attorneys. And the same girl is sitting in a chair. Her name is Tiffany. And she said, go on, get your blessing, girl. And I was like, this is it. I'm about to go home. And so I go down and, you know, my attorneys tell me that I'm going home. 
while I'm waiting for them to come in, you know, I'm just praying, thanking God. I'm I'm stepping out on faith. I'm like, I receive it. I know I'm about to go home. I know that's what this is. They come in and tell me. But then later they let me know that the governor had called them to their office on that Thursday to tell them that he was going to make the announcement Monday. So, you know, I thought back to when she said. It's going to be a good day. Yeah. And I was like, man, that was the Holy Spirit all day long. Mm. Yeah. The day when you get out. It's one thirty in the morning, right? That they come and say, "Okay, yeah. come on, leave your cell, yeah. put on your clothes, and walk out." And what was that like? It was good. Like everybody kept asking me the craziest question, like the day before and everything. Are you excited? Are you excited? And I'm like, "Bro, like, of course I'm excited. Like, I'm going home. Like, God just did a miracle. Yes, I'm excited. But like, you couldn't really tell. Like, I was just so calm and peaceful. So they're like, "Are you excited?" And I was, and they thought, like, you know, you're not going to sleep tonight. Of course I did. I was knocked out, mouth open and everything when they came and got me. (laughs) So, you know, I hurried up, and I went, and I got myself together. I had already given everything away. Like, when I tell you it was bare bones, it was bare bones. I gave pretty much everything away even before, you know, I heard when I was stepping out on faith. It's like, Lord, I gave away everything, and I gave away my good lip gloss. You got to come through. You got to let me out. So... I had pretty much nothing but what I had to take with me, which was pretty much nothing. Didn't want anything from that prison coming with me. You can have it. And, you know, got ready, went over. There it is. I was free. What has been some of the biggest adjustments of the last couple of months? Because you were away for a long time. The world changed a lot. There was a lot. The world's got to... expensive. I'll tell you that. <laughs> like, it's gotten so expensive. It's gotten so crazy. And I, apparently, I'm, like, super cheap, like, in my mind. I didn't I didn't really know that. I've never really had to spend my own money for anything. I still don't most of the time. My husband's good to me. But still, like, when you go to the store, I have my little shopping list and everything. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to give me some Velveeta and some of this. And then you get in the store and Velveeta's like $12. Like, oh, no, honey, I'm not getting that. I'll get this stuff, the uh, the Velveeta or whatever the knockoff is. I'm not getting that. But it's just ridiculous. Like, prices are crazy. I've never had to deal with, like, health insurance, like having to get my own health insurance. So I was 16. I was out. My parents took care of all that. So having to look with my husband about things like this, and it's like, What? Like four hundred, five hundred dollars for for something I may not even need and I have to have it? Like that's ridiculous. What was the thing you wanted to do? Like when you woke up and you're free, um, what was something that you're like, I wanna what? Walk around with my hair all over my head and just be free. Like really nothing like, oh, I wanna go ice skating. Like nothing like that. I just I just wanted to chill. Like, I wanted to cook in my own kitchen, like what I wanted to cook with without having, you know, pay somebody in the kitchen to give me onions and garlic. I wanted to have everything that I needed and just make what I wanted, walk around in my gown all day, you know, my little bonnet on and just chill. And that's that's what I do most times when I'm home. So. But what do you want to do with the rest of your life to honor the experience that you've come through? What I do now, what I do every day, like, you know, just telling everybody about it. So many people don't understand, like, what really goes on, like, when you're going through that. Like, there's a superficial understanding. Um, Some people, like, pay attention to it a little bit, and then they just move on to something else, you know. But, you know, just, like, really speaking out, like, speaking with girls, speaking with young people, 
um, spending time with him. What is the just, message that you want them to get? Well, with the girls that I speak with in particular, you know, it's that you don't you don't have to work so hard at being accepted. It's okay. Like, if you don't fit in, who cares? Like, who cares? There's always going to be somebody that has something negative to say about you. There's always going to be somebody that says, like, you don't belong here or you're this and that. Somebody's always going to try to tear you down. Like, if you just try to, to cater to everybody, it's you're always going to be miserable. Like, you definitely have to find... Like who you are, for me, it was finding who I am in Christ to where I'm okay. Like, I don't care what people have to say about me. Like, I just don't. I know that I'm walking in the way that he's called me to walk. I'm trying to live to please him, and that's where it is. And, you know, I tell them all the time, like, you are loved, and you are okay just the way that you are. Like, just the way that you are. We talked about how at the beginning of this experience, your self-image was zero. It was nothing. Mm -hmm. So... What is it now? What do you think of yourself now? I mean, I'm I'm like I'm pretty dope, you know. <laughs> like I'm just, I'm just saying, I love me. You know, I love me. I think I'm pretty awesome. Thanks to Centoya for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall, and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday, no doubt, with another amazing person, because the man can't shut us down. 